backup. I became frustrated because the content you always read, it's always this short form content. You know, the 10 things Elon Musk does before breakfast, or, you know, what does Mark Zuckerberg wear? You know, why does he wear black every day? Who cares, right? And if you're in the trenches, you're starting off. And I think entrepreneurial, either starting a business or being ultimately minded in your career, which a lot of great sales leaders are, there wasn't really good content on the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And I experienced so many ups and downs in my entrepreneurial journey. I see it today. And I would argue that you take the same business, same business plan, same access to resources and capital. The difference tends to be the mental tenacity of the entrepreneur. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Mike Smirklow. Mike's an entrepreneur and investor and author of a book titled Mr. Monkey and Me, which is one of my favorite titles recently of a book. And the Mr. Monkey in the title of Mike's book is The Proverbial Monkey on Your Back, in this case, The Monkey of Self-Doubt. In this episode, Mike and I have a conversation around the story of his own struggles with self-doubt as he grew from an entrepreneur and CEO at a small business that he grew into a category-leading publicly traded company, a company called Service Source. And on the other side of the coin, Mike shares a story about the day he was let go from Service Source and the events that led up to it and why it turned out to be the right thing to happen after all and what it has meant for him. So then we get into Mike's book. We dig into the heart of the book, which is built around what he calls the shape mindset framework. It's five sort of easy steps to help anyone trying to succeed in any endeavor. And whether they're struggling a bit is to manage and conquer the self-doubt that plagues us all at one point or another in our careers. So let's jump into it with Mike. Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you. So uh, where have you been spending your time during the pandemic? Well, I have been mostly in Wyoming during the pandemic. No, not bad. Not bad. Where in Wyoming? Uh, just outside Jackson, Wyoming. Place here. So yeah, it's been good. Trying to figure out, starting to travel again. So, you know, the world feels to be kind of opening up, but maybe shutting back down. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I, we're recording this in uh, a week before the presidential election. And yeah, looks, we are definitely experiencing a surge. Um, so, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I think we're going <laughs> to we're going to be headed back where we were in, in March and April. Yeah, I think that's right. Actually, I think I love your material and your podcast, but I think learning to sell in the pandemic is a brand new set of challenges to an already difficult thing to do. Yeah. Well, I think that I, I really think that one of the real big issues that we'll confront is that people are just, people didn't sign up for this. That's the bottom line, right? Most people, yeah. when they went to work and signed up for a company, they didn't sign up for this. And as much as it's great to have be enabled through the tools and technology to be able to do it. Uh, I think it's going to be a real problem if it's for a lot of companies and a lot of employees, if it goes on way too long. Yeah, I think you're right. It is uh, unprecedented times and that word is used quite a bit, but I actually think it really qualifies this time. Well, and the good thing is you used it properly as opposed to saying unprecedented, which most people do. Um, <laughs> we might be there in a couple of weeks. I don't know. <laughs> uh, keeping my fingers crossed. Uh, so, yeah. Well, here's a question for you. Is what's, uh, what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? The biggest lesson I've learned about myself is that I desperately miss interchange with people one-on-one. -on -one. 
And I knew that I've always been an extrovert. I've always enjoyed the camaraderie of being in office or being with, I now run a venture capital firm. So working with the entrepreneurs and I think you can get 75 to 80% of the work done. A lot of work I realize is fine to do remote, but there's something about sitting down with a leader or a prospect or what have you face to face and having that dialogue and mm-hmm. human interchange, which is always important, but I just I probably didn't realize how important it was to me. Face to face. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to virtual. Yeah, I, I, and I think this is yeah, obviously an issue in sales is, is people are full of, of quote-unquote data and research, you know, which are really just sort of spur-of-the-moment surveys saying, oh, this is the way buyers prefer it. They don't even want to talk to us. They don't want to see us. And it's like, yeah, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I spent my career before venture running a company that did yeah. both inside and outside sales. And I just don't know how you do enterprise sales, and we've seen it. You know, there is something about sitting down at dinner with someone, learning about their family, their whatever their personal interests are, that builds a connection that enables a value proposition sale. And I, it's just really, really hard to do over Zoom or a phone call. Yeah, uh, certainly as, as the sale becomes more complex, I think this is that's certainly, I think, is true 100%. But I also, I think even before the pandemic, you know, in the the SaaS world in particular, there was this skepticism about the need to go meet customers face to face. And I remember giving a keynote address to a group of enterprise sales and leaders, and and saying, you know, who travels to close a deal? You know, if you if you're got a deal, let's say it's over 100k annual contract value, yep. do you go do you go travel to see them? And very few raised their hand. And I was thinking, hmm, you know. If I was competing against you, uh, that'd be worth it. That's worth a plane trip to go close a hundred k deal. I beat yeah. you every time. Heck yeah, yeah. We used to do the old. Uh, I'm in the park. I'll, I'll be in Seattle tomorrow. <laughs> and if the, if the customer said, "Prospect, I could meet you there," we'd say, "Holy cow, we better go book our flights to Seattle." Exactly. You know, just, that's how we Seattle. Did it. I used to do that for London and and Bonn yeah. and, and Berlin and places like that. It's like <laughs> same, same I'm gonna be over in Europe next week. Uh, what's your schedule on Tuesday? <laughs> well, you're not there Tuesday. Well, actually, I was going to be there Thursday. Exactly. I read my I read my calendar wrong. That's yeah. right. I had it upside down. It's it's actually, <laughs> yeah. It's I try to relate to, to people with stories about. Yeah, I've spent years selling overseas well before the internet, uh, even before email, and yeah, try prospecting in a multi-billion dollar company in in Berlin with. Nothing but a phone and and no directory, no internet, no email. I mean, it's it's a different challenge. And once you're able to make a connection, going face to face made a difference. Well, I think the biggest thing for for me, what I've noticed, and you know, less in the selling capacity now than I was before, but it's the nuance. We used to always think about when you get four or five people, if you're doing an enterprise sale around the table, Mm -hmm. there's always that one person that was sitting over in the corner. Probably had a couple, you know, bagels and arms and arms were crossed and didn't say anything. And part of the sales job is who's the buyer, but who's the sniper, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard on Zoom to get that body language that's neutral to negative because usually, in my experience, that's the more important person. Like, okay, what is what is Fred over there who didn't say anything? What's his role? What is he trying to do? And why is he a blocker? That's yeah. hard to pick up over Zoom. What did he say about me as soon as the meeting was over? Exactly. Yeah, the second meeting. That's always the hard one. It's always the hard one. And uh, Steve Martin, not the comedian, but the professor at uh, USC who writes about business and so on, um, 
you know, did a study on this whole thing about stakeholders and saying, yeah, you got to start of dismiss this idea that it's you know one vote per person type thing. Is there's always a dominant figure in the group of of influencers. You need to figure out who that is. That could be the guy in the corner, not saying anything, eating the bagels, who looks like, yeah, yeah, he doesn't look, he does not wearing a suit, doesn't look nice. He could be the guy. Yeah, yeah, and he could be the he could be the person that you, if you make him or her a hero, as we used to say, could propel the solution. But also, we always used to thought about you know, there's all this work on great work recently on buyer personas. But I think when you forget the sniper as a persona or inertia as a persona, you, mm-hmm. you really can you can miss a real trick. Yeah, or the the bully with a pulpit. I think is how Steve yeah. Martin talked about it with with the dominant personality inside the the stakeholder group. So uh, we're going to talk about a book that you've written that's coming out called Mister Monkey and Me, and uh, very interesting title. So tell people what the monkey is. I mean, I think we sort of know about the monkey on your back, but tell us about the monkey in your book. Yeah, so I had written this book largely because as an entrepreneur and now as a venture capitalist, I became frustrated, a little bit of backup, I became frustrated because the content you always read, it's always this short form content, you know, the 10 things Elon Musk does before breakfast, or, you know, what does Mark Zuckerberg wear? You know, why does he wear black every day? Who cares, right? And if you're if you're in the trenches, you're starting off. And I think entrepreneurial either starting a business or being ultimately minded in your career, which a lot of great sales leaders are there wasn't really good content on the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And I experienced so many ups and downs in my entrepreneurial journey. I see it today. And I would argue that you take the same business, same business plan, same access to resources and capital. The difference tends to be the mental tenacity of the entrepreneur. And what Mr. Monkey is, he's this massive creature in my mind that basically told <laughs> me I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, uh, you know, he was here right before the podcast. It's kind of funny. He's an invisible creature. But he ran into my home office and he said, no one cares what you say. No one's going to listen to this podcast. And, uh, by the way, you know, your shirt is the wrong color. Stuff like that that gets in your head and can knock you off your game. And so the book is really about my battle with the monkey, lifelong battle, frenemy, if you will. Mm-hmm. But then more specifically, I developed a framework, a five-point framework to help aspiring or current entrepreneurs overcome the monkey and build mental toughness. Yeah, which we're going to apply some of those to the sales sales world uh, because I think there's a lot of parallels, as you said. And it certainly starts with this idea of self-doubt. I mean, we all have, I guess, except maybe for sociopaths, we all have self-doubt. Um, and... But what's interesting is, you know, you were just talking about this example right before we started talking about the, you know, having a conversation with Mr. Monkey, as you do throughout the book. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like, oh, God, I've reached a point where, yeah, I don't care what anybody says about what I say or, you know, you don't reach a point of caring less. You know, I, I wish I would. Uh, it's funny, Andy. I feel like <laughs> in part of the, you know, at, at this point in my life, why I wrote the book was when I was younger, I thought certain markers of success uh, I worked in business development and then I, ran, I bought a company and ran it. And I thought, well, if a company got this big, I achieved this much financially, socially, I reached a certain status level that finally the voice would say, hey, good job. You know, I give up and I'm going to go home. And I don't, I've come to conclude now for me personally, maybe for certain others, um, which I would love to learn from, the voice stops. But it really was about coming to, to grips with it and accepting it and then possibly turning it into a strength. 
that that's really where I see the the judo move that's possible mm-hmm. in any walk of life in sales and leadership and entrepreneurship or just you know getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I certainly I think to some degree some of that's age related. I mean, I I as yeah, I'm <laughs> old, and um, yeah, I've just found that some of that stuff's less important. You know, the voices telling me, you know, the imposter syndrome, the the self doubt, and so on. I mean, I it's not like it completely goes away. As as you mentioned in the book, I mean, when I first started public speaking, uh, you know, my my wife would always ask me, "Well, how'd it go?" And this was you know, not that long ago. It was you know, like eight years ago I started speaking in public, and and my you know my benchmark was well, you know, no one stood up and called me an idiot, so I guess it went okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we all have that sitting there. Yeah, and I think the thing is, I actually feel it's it, it let, early on it was certainly imposter syndrome, but I just feel like as you get older or you take on different challenges, just recognizing. In my case, I talk about in the book, the monkey kind of changes as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and adapts. And so that's fine. I've just learned the biggest learning I've had is he, in my mind, and he's gender neutral and uh, just happened to personify it as a monkey for me. Right. You can, you know, whatever you want, whatever creature <laughs> you want is fine. Um, learning to understand that and then building a mental framework to, uh, as I said, turn it into, if not a, a pure strength, at least a neutral part of your life. Yeah. Well, I want to jump into the mindset, but before I do that, I, I just want to, Touching one bit that you had talked about the importance of the advice of your mom to just go to college, um, but sort of the the subtext there is that that yeah, modest goals and small steps. I think is how you phrase it is how journeys start, and I I think this for me this is a big topic because I think that we we certainly in the sales world we overemphasize this idea that you know if you read a, a book like you know your book. And you don't make this case at all, but I'm saying giving as example, is that you have the power to transform yourself, right? The word's so big on transformation. And I don't think people transform. I think people change and make incremental gains. You know, that small things yep. matter and that all adds up. And that that phrase, you know, resonates with me. I was wondering if you've continued to sort of look at it that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a big fan of that approach in every part of life. And for me, yeah, just getting out of a, a challenging economic environment growing up and having a single mom say, just get to college and a modest goal to do that. But I think you can break that down in just about anything, whatever your goal is, and certainly in sales. I think there's way too much of glorification of a leader that achieved amazing things. And at some point, you can find it can be self-defeating. Like, wow, I'm, I'm here and the book I just read or a podcast I just listened to about Elon Musk is going back to that. You're like, well, shoot, it's going to be so hard to even get going. And that's, I think that's the opposite of what I recommend. To your point, one small step. The journey begins with a step. And anything you can do to get momentum moving forward, momentum is a very, very positive thing. Mm. It has a very powerful. So, yeah, I completely agree across all walks of life. But I, I think it also it, this sort of connects a little bit to the story you tell in the book about your friend Dono or employee, friend. Yes. And who, you know, a longtime associate and you had some sort of rating system the HR people did about potential, right? And, yes. and we fall into this trap so often of just categorizing people. And as a result, I think we end up uh, shortchanging so many people. You know, in sales, it's A players, B players, C players. It's like, 
come on, is that the way we want to rate people? <laughs> it's like, there's got to be a more objective way that we look at folks and say, instead of saying potential, saying, well, how did we fall short, right? How do we help this person achieve to the best of their, their ability and become the best version of themselves? Absolutely. You know, it's funny, as a, I'd written a blog post, it was precursor to my book called Sales Leaders Are Like Cats. And this came from a, a quote someone was calling to uh, talk to me about hiring salespeople from my experience. And mm-hmm. it was an investor and he said, I just don't get sales professionals. They're like cats. What do you mean salespeople are like cats? I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, I haven't either. Yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm not a fan of cats. Um, but he said, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're odd and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're very hard. They're kind of independent. They're odd. They don't seem to care what other people think. And it was kind of a, my takeaway of that as relates to your comment was, and I wrote this for a very long blog post about it is I think the, the worst people trap that fall into in general with leaders, but certainly with salespeople is that there is a type of salesperson. Right. Right. Because, and you know this from your great content and I'm, I'm such a huge fan of the work you're doing. It's oh, amazing. You. But you know, the, the type of person that can do inside sales versus outside sales enterprise versus SMB uh, high value prop versus fear and certainly doubt. There's so many different attributes of sales as you know, better than anybody. So you could have someone say, I'm not a great salesperson. Well, actually, we found in, in the company I ran called Service Source for a long time, there were some great people that were very good at inside sales, high volume, and they were never, and they couldn't make the transition outside sales. So to your point on potential, I think it's really about understanding yourself, learning what you're good at, and playing to your strengths. And that certainly applies to sales leadership and sales capabilities like it does everything else. And I think just to build on that, though, is that, that I think leaders need to do a better job of not typecasting people because I think there's so much underutilized potential. I say this all the time in sales is because people sort of, people like to think that in sales, maybe maybe your experience was this at service source, but yeah, they like to think, "Ah, man, just treat everybody the same. Yeah. And they don't. Right. And success gets determined oftentimes for some people pretty quickly. And I remember this one client company I worked with, there was a, one of their sellers who was pathologically shy. I mean, you would not have interviewed, I would not have interviewed, I wouldn't have put this anybody else, but because someone clearly did hire him. But he had been a software engineer and, and uh, had been brought over into sales. And you know, he couldn't bring himself to talk to somebody face-to-face, basically. But to your point about inside sales, he just crushed it. Yeah. He was selling a technical product. He was an engineer, so he knew the product inside out. He knew the use cases inside and out. Yeah, I worked at that company as sort of a fractional VP for like four years. You're know, running sales a day, one day a week. And after four years, he still couldn't bring himself to talk to me in the lunchroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was just killing it. And people like this get overlooked all the time. And companies, yeah, sort of shoot themselves in the foot because they think, Oh, we looked at their potential as a per year story about Dono, and yeah, they yeah, got to go. Don- yeah, the Dono story is a great. Uh, that was a, uh, the context behind that was just a, a great role player that we were, to your point, trying to put into a very thoughtful McKinsey s graph, right? You know, high mm-hmm. potential, low potential, all that stuff that we do to, to prove that we're great, effective managers. And I certainly fell in that trap. Uh, but then we looked at it, and the aha moment for someone like that was. He was an amazing carrier of the culture badge. Um, and that wasn't all he did. He, was, he had great attributes, but it was the trying to put him into a box and then stepping back and saying, maybe we're thinking about this wrong. If we mm-hmm. want to build a great company, if we want to have uh, 
camaraderie and leadership from a grassroots movement. Can he help us with there? And once we modified our own aperture, if you will, then we put him in different roles and he flourished. And it's just a great reminder of, of all the things you just alluded to. Yeah. And the point is that not everybody sells the same way. And this is sort of may sound odd coming from somebody that <laughs> is employed by a technology company that, but yeah, there's, there's this movement afoot to try to use the technology to make everybody just like everybody else. Right. Is if I can record phone calls and, and coach to, you know, a certain uh, template, if you will, of my quote unquote top performer, well, but not everybody can be that person. And they can be just as effective, but in their own way. And we seem to have been losing this ability. I think I see it a lot in sort of sales organizations and in the tech world. Lose yeah. this ability to develop the strengths of the individual. So they can be like Don, or they could be effective contributors in their own way. And I was maybe I'm sensitive to it because that's the way I came into sales. I was yeah. I'm an introvert. I didn't uh had never thought about being in sales you know, the first few months out making in the East Bay area in Oakland and San Leandro making, you know, 30, 40 cold calls a day in business parks it really smacked me in the face. <laughs> I was yeah. like, yeah, I don't think I want to do this at one point. <laughs> well, I have a question. So Andy, how do you think about, how does that relate in your world to what the buyer is? Because I also find, I'll put forth an idea that I think sure. that often you overlook the type of buyer and and matching the personality to that. Do you, do you see that as a common mistake as well? Certainly for earlier companies. Well, yeah. you buyer personas, but is it a technical buyer? Is it the CFO? Is it the head of HR? And then and then back uh, solving to the type of salesperson. Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't think you can necessarily do a match because you don't know a priori what you're going to run into. Yep. And so I think this idea of being authentically yourself as one is that, yeah, you're not going to be a, a personality match with everybody you run across, but that's just part of your job, right? That's part of life. You know, how do we, how do we work in a, a diverse environment and still achieve what help the buyer achieve what they want to achieve and achieve what we want to achieve. And yeah, I think we can sort of go too far with the personas issue because at the end of the day, as I like to say, you sell to people, not personas. Yeah. And peoples are infinitely more complex than the personas that we've written for their position. And you need to have the ability to dig deep and ask the questions and listen to understand what they're saying. And yeah, multiple personality types can do that. Well, I think I have multi I think I have multiple personalities inside my head. So <laughs> I think we're all for, for the book, right? But I think that I love the persona work and I encourage all my my portfolio companies to do it. Yeah. But but what you just said is so incredibly important, which is but don't become so enamored with it that you sell to a persona, not a person. That's right. brilliant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down and share that with our teams because you you can have yeah. I'll send, I'll send you the blog post. Yeah, please do. Thank you. But it but it is it is critical, right? Because this is such a big thing for me. Is that we're in a human business. Uh, yeah, technology is helping. AI is helping, but. It should be there. You know, AI right now, it's, hey, let's get rid of the repetitive tasks to free up more time to spend time with our customers. But then secondly, the second wave is going to be, well, how can I help amplify your humanity to help you more effective in those moments you're interacting with people? And it's not to become less human. It's to become more aware. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, all right. So let's talk about, so your, your mindset, the shape mindset, self, 
help, authenticity, persistence, and expectations. Uh, and let's dive into those. Let's see if we have time to get through. Now, it's interesting you talked about self. You said, hey, critical things, you have to know yourself. And, and you have this list you said you wrote as a 22-year-old, what you know about yourself. Um, I mean, I know certainly myself as a 22-year-old, I could never have been nearly that self-perceptive. I mean, is it is some of that sort of you know, retrospective, or did you actually write those things? Because no, you had some fairly keen insights into yourself that I was not capable yeah. of. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I talk about it in the book. I was uh, one of the lucky finds I had in a kind of a weird moment. I was going off to college. First person family go to college. I'm selling beer at Cincinnati Bengals games on Sundays, trying, <laughs> you know, carrying three jobs. And I found this old self-help tape in uh, the back of my, my mom's attic. And it was all about, it was the self-help movement, this guy named Dennis Waitley. And I just yep. bring this up because yep. it was, it really cued into this world that I'd never heard of, which was around understanding your strengths and weaknesses and self-awareness. So I listened to those things almost nonstop in college. I don't think any of my fraternity brothers know that, but uh, you know, I'd walk to class and act like I was listening to music and I'm here, I'm listening to self-help tapes. But what it did for me was, one, it showed me a different world of mindset. And then secondarily, it helped begin a journey on self-awareness. And that was an actual list that I found in some old college notebooks. Um, and it's, so it's dead on. I think the biggest thing that what, what it really told, turned, told me is way too much of self-help or what have you is around trying to fix your weaknesses. And I've become a believer over the last 30 years is it's really hard to change any weakness. It's impossible to change someone else's weakness so if you can focus on your strengths and other strengths, it, it's a much easier, I think, way to live, but also will enable success by saying, I'm really good at this. And yeah, I got to improve a little bit here, but if I can focus on my strengths and play to those strengths, you know, better to, better to run downhill than walk uphill, if you will. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I have to admit, I mean, as a 22 year old, plus I, I, if I look back at my career and what my strengths are at, no, no perception of what those would have been when I was 22. So congratulations on that. Now, but you had two interesting things in that list that I'd want to <laughs> ask you about. One is you said, uh, I care more about my own success than just about anything else. And two is I love team wins, but my personal success is more important than team success. So the first thing that popped to mind is, hmm, I need to ask Mike, would you hire that person? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a bit embarrassing, right? And I think anyone who works with me probably says, yeah, that's actually right. You know, what, what, it, what it cued in for me is, it sounds pretty horrific, actually, when, I, when you say it out loud. But what, what <laughs> Sorry, it did do, much no, there. no, no, I mean, it's the list. I mean, that's, that's self-awareness. And what it showed for me is I was never a really good, I mean, I was a pretty good team player. I wouldn't do anything to break up teams, but I kind of wanted the ball. And that's what, when I was in my 20s and working through it, and I had a chance to work with two legendary technical, technology entrepreneurs, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. Mm -hmm. At one point in the book, I said, I still thought they were idiots. And, you know, that's that's hubris or, or, or just inexperience. But I just had this, when I break it down further, it was a desire to have the ball, if you will, mm -hmm. and, and to run something. And yeah. so it, when, when I say it out loud, that, that was my first inkling. And then when I evolved it and dug more into thought, it's like, okay, that's a leadership attribute done well. But it then can also turn into a leadership limitation. Because if you only want to do this by yourself, you're going to run a one-person company. Uh, and so it took me a long time. By the time I retired, there's over 3,000 employees at the company I was uh, running. Wanting the ball, wanting to be the person, if you will, that doesn't scale. 
And so I think that was kind of an early observation that I had to modify as, yeah. I, as my organization scale. Yeah, because it also sort of speaks about the idea of not being able to share credit as well, which, which unfortunately, I've worked for CEOs that have had that, that issue in startups, which is, uh, you know, sort of Teflon coded and the problem's never stuck and they always took credit for everybody else's work. But um, those organizations end up not doing well. So, um, so the second thing then is, so we did uh, self-awareness and then second is help. And this is, I think, such an important topic is having, I guess, the self-awareness, I'd call it the vulnerability to, yep. to ask for help. Vulnerability is a better word. And it, the reason I put them in this order is I think it's a self-awareness, this grid of like, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Then comparing it to where you're trying to get to. And if you think about a sales, if you're an individual contributor or a sales leadership, any, any t- the risk is you think you have to be good at everything and there's no such person. Right. And so what I finally figured out through a, a wonderful person I got, I was lucky to know Bill Campbell back in the Valley. Yeah, I, um, I, worked, I worked for Bill at Apple. Yeah. So, you, you know, and you know, yeah. what we became the, the trillion dollar coach is the book that's written right. about him. But Bill is a guy that said, hey, wait a minute, Steve Jobs has a coach. Tiger Woods have a coach. Why the hell doesn't Mike Smirkle have a coach? Mm-hmm. And if you knew coach, he kind of said it with, all, with a few more explicatives and, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a gravelly voice that was legendary. But then it started to dawn on me as an entrepreneur. And again, I think it applies to a lot of other positions, certainly sales, where you think, I've seen sales leaders do this too. I've, I've always seen salespeople that say, I got to run the whole sales process. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like you, the best salespeople I saw, they used every available resource, right. the CEO, the SE, whatever it is, grab them. And that, I think, is another example of where you can get help. It could be how you close a deal or it could be how you develop your skills over time. There's no right answer, but there's a lot of people out there. And the other thing I say is everything you're trying to achieve, somebody somewhere has already done it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not get to Mars. Maybe maybe that one you could take off the list from Elon Musk. But other than that, space travel, we've done it. So you look at it and say, okay, there is someone out there and it could be lateral, it could be above, it could be below going finding mentors or someone who's done what you've done before and precisely asking them for help is a game changer and really overlooked in a lot of people, especially early on in their career. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the, the reasons this is the case is, and I got more from the sales perspective, but I think it's true across the board is that especially for people in leadership positions is quite frankly, they're afraid to ask for help. Right. Cause they're, exactly. There's this assumption that, well, you're in this job, and sometimes this is accentuated by people above them. You're in this job. Why do you need help? We hired you because you could do this job. You know, I, I saw this all the time as, as a consultant is that in my, the work I did, I was never hired by the VP of sales. I was always hired by the CEO. Yep. Because the VP would always hold it at arm's length. It's like, well, that's a sign of weakness. If 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 I want to have Andy come in and help me, that's a sign of weakness because since I'm the VP, I'm considered to be an expert on all these things, you know, motivation and performance improvement and you know, go down the list, which you know haven't been trained for, don't have experience and all of these things. And I find that it's really just this fear that yeah. is at the root of so much of the the problems we have. It's, it's so, that is such an amazing observation. And I, as a CEO, I, I talk about, I, I hired and fired four head of sales because mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what I was looking for. And then finally I got some help and it, it evolved forward. But to your point, I think the, the sales leader who says, or any leader, but sales who says, oh, I don't, I don't want help. 
and, and starts to take that mindset, it's a short term. They're, they're not, it, it's so hard to make it if you're not open-mindedly looking around going, Who's, who can help me? And I think the good people yeah. like are, become selfish and like become, as I said before, they're they're like, I'll take any help I can get. <laughs> uh, and you know, the, the best athletes in the world, that's what they do. So why why would uh, you know the best golfers have a fitness coach, a nutritional coach, and of course, you know, economic resources? But I heard this great podcast on LeBron James, and LeBron James was talking about all the different coaches that he has around him outside of mm-hmm. the head basketball coach. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, it's, it's a very different mindset. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different conversation about coaching and in business. Because to LeBron's point is, is I think certainly in the business world, we've just done a piss poor job of of coaching people. And you look at you know, especially in sales, we look at which is a performance based profession. You know, if you look at sports, you know, I'm a huge soccer fan. So you look at the coaching staff of any sort of Premier League soccer team. They've got these range of specialized coaches to help people in specific areas you know my favorite goal liverpool they have a coach just to coach throw-ins for goodness sakes yeah yeah. And yeah it's like leaders of enterprises look and say well we don't yeah sales is fine you know let's make the vp be the coach or the director of the frontline manager people have no training in in it at all who are oftentimes inadequate in it and yet we have this opportunity we could be much more specialized, but we just, we don't do that. And again, I think it all comes down to this fear thing. I think that's at the root of all of it. Yep. Yep. Well, this is, I mean, again, back to the Mr. Monkey and how this plays into it. Yeah. Mr. Monkey's telling you that that's, that's a perfect example of the monkey voice in my head. You're the VP of sales and monkey says, well, no, no. If you, if you go ask for help, look, the CEO is going to think you don't know what you're doing. That, that is exactly the personification that I, I believe you're like, okay, self-awareness. I hear mm-hmm. the voice. Okay, let me take the let me take upon myself to go get some help, even if my organization's not going to provide it for me. And yeah, I was I sort of tended to go the other direction because I was I always was asking for help because I I, you know, I was selling often for years selling complex satellite communication systems. I was a history major in college, and I was yeah I knew the technology from a sort of lay perspective, but getting a customer conversation, I was sort of kind of lost. So I needed help in lots of different dimensions. <laughs> it got so bad at one company, the CEO came to me and said, your eyes are working on things other than your projects. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, yeah. we're closing the deals. Yeah, whatever it takes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then authenticity. Let's talk about that because that's this is a big issue in sales. Um, you know, people feel like they're playing a role as opposed to being themselves. Um, so tell us what you're writing about there. Yeah, so it's the next step along. So once you get some help, I, I read about the book where I, as a CEO, it relates to that time of my entrepreneurial or professional journey. And I had two great ideas in my head of what a CEO was supposed to be. I had this alpha male and I had a, a, a more introverted CEO and I was constantly battling with it. And it, it came out in the Dono example we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. but the net of it for me was really I was trying to be someone else and it was holding me back in ways I didn't fully realize. And there's, there's a gazillion books written about authenticity and authentic, authentic, authentic leadership. For me, it just came down to really accepting again, what my self-awareness, what my strengths and weaknesses were talking to other people about how I get some help and then just showing up comfortable in my own skin, much easier to say than it is to do. But I think, we all as humans, to your point, whether it be a Zoom call or in person, you know right away whether or not someone is comfortable in their own skin, 
whether they're not, whether they're reading from a script or they're actually passionate about the product. Yeah. And I think for salespeople, if you're selling something that you don't love and aren't excited about, it shows up right away. And that's where authenticity in anything you're doing, I think it just, people smell it like perfume. It's that visceral where you go, this person either really is authentic and believes in what they're trying to me to get to buy or they don't. And we see it right away. Yeah. I think that's how it plays out, certainly in sales and in leadership. Yeah, I'd put a slight tone on that for sales. I think that you can be, um, you don't necessarily need to be passionate about the product, but you have to be passionate about wanting to help the buyer. Yeah, and if you, if, if you lead with that, that's that's good. But it's an interesting story in your book because, yeah, you talk about this alpha, alpha male. You used <laughs> interesting example of Greg Ray. So for those of us who have been around long enough to know, he's ended up being a criminal going to prison for 18 months, but was, yeah, uh, the alpha male, as you talked about, sort of an extremist. Yeah, and you were around in the Valley, in Silicon Valley in the late uh, 90s. Yeah. The Valley was filled with, that was the that was the Valley, uh, for better or worse, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. Technology sales was all about uh, that that persona. Um, and like, Greg certainly was a, a very relevant figure in, in my life in that regard. Yeah, well, sort of, yeah, the example I use was sort of, uh, like heavy metal bands and their demands on promoters for... <laughs> <laughs> the treatment they wanted. That's a, that's a great comparison. Yeah. All right. So P was persistence. Um, keep after it, even if it seems impossible. And and yeah, it struck me. You know, as we started reading through that section, I was like, oh, okay. So Mike came around to this idea of the value of team success. Yeah, and I think that the persistence mindset it kind of goes back, Andy. What you're talking about earlier about that first step. Way too often, you know, whether it be a sales goal, an entrepreneurial goal, you say, oh, gosh, I you set this huge goal and you think that's going to motivate you. And I find it to be demotivating in some regards and lead to, it ties into expectations, the last part. But persistence for me is just saying, understanding that it's going to be a lot of work mm-hmm. and having and knowing that and then understanding that once you get comfortable with that, you're going to get hung up in sales. You're going to get people tell you that, that you're crazy or they don't like your product or whatever it is. If you expect it to be the opposite and you don't have a persistent mindset, it's going to be a pretty short-lived endeavor. And so persistence to me is really about just having the understanding going in and it relates relates to expectations and then having the wherewithal to keep after it. Yeah, and I would add one thing to that because to me, the the thing with persistence is that yeah, you can you can persist and not be aware of why you're not having success. And I see a lot of sellers do that. And it's like, yeah, if it's not working, change, right? Part of being persistent is yep. why do I need to vary in order to have, start having success in what I'm doing? And too often persistence is certainly in sales orders are pushed as, you know, yeah, keep on going, make that extra call. It's like, yeah, oftentimes it's not the extra call that's going to make the difference. It's why don't we do a better job on the first call? It's, it's so let's, br- yeah. let's persist yeah. in that. Yeah, persist on understanding your customer, persist on understanding the value proposition, persist on different ways of, of approaching those things. That's a much better way to think about it because, yeah, I, I think the, the risk is you just say, and I see an entrepreneurship every day at my firm, Next Coast Ventures, where you say, you know, there's, there's companies, entrepreneurs that say, I'm just going to keep going. Like, no, no, if it's not working, it's a lot of your time and money and energy. And it's okay to say I was wrong about the market opportunity. I was wrong about the way I should try and uh, present the value proposition. So modify. 
but, yeah. but don't give up. Yeah. All right. So last one is of the E of shape is uh, set your expect well, expectations and set your sights on the right goals. Uh, I like the Marcus Aurelius quote because uh, I you know, do a little reading and stoic stuff. Is He said, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. Um, and there's context you provide for that. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, when you read that quote, you look at it and you say, gosh, he sounds like a pretty miserable person. And, and, and my joke was, he sounds kind of like Mr. Monkey says that to me every day. But what I loved about that quote is, if if you take that extreme, and this is the beauty of stoicism, if you take that extreme, then it's all upside in some regard in, in one capacity. But the second part is just understanding that the world is going to, you're going to sell into an indifferent world. And that was a real learning for me early on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can come up with the best product, the best idea, the best sales pitch. Be prepared to be met with indifference. Yes. And I have, written, I have that on a yellow sticky and I've had it there for like 30 years where it's like, be prepared to be met with indifference as you take your idea out into the world. And that's what the Marcus Aurelius quote is, because once you do that, then you will go out with the expectations that, all right, now my job is to bring value. My job is to have enthusiasm. My job is to change someone's mind. Much, much better way to start than saying, I've got, I've got lightning in a bottle here and everyone's wanting, going to want to buy it. <laughs> uh, I heard this great um, podcast with Mark Andreessen, um, again, who I worked with briefly and mm-hmm. he's a huge fan, is such a great speaker. He said, the world is busy. You tell me right now, right now, someone who has extra time to go research the next best blank that they may want to be buying. No one's doing that. The world is busy. And so the faster it ties to that quote as well, the more you think about, I'm going into an indifferent and really busy world. I think your mindset and your expectations as to how to sell, how to get through challenges is radically different than a 180 view of that. Yeah, and the only th- when I was reading that, the only thing that I sort of added uh, from my perspective is that, yeah, for me that I'd always looked at that as an opportunity, though, right? Is yes. To, and I didn't. I just funny. I I never came from sales's perspective of of I was trying to change people's minds. For me, I was always thinking from perspective of I'm trying to help people make their minds up. And yeah, this is that's, that's and this brilliant. is something I think that's such a different perspective that none of people in sales, and I think even in business have, is like it's really to Andreessen's point, they're busy. They don't have their minds made up about anything. Yeah. You know, there was a great book written recently by Jonah Berger out of Wharton called The Catalyst, How to Change People's Minds. And he and I sort of got into a little bit of the podcast because I was saying, Yeah, I think most people don't have their minds made up. Yeah. I think that's sort of our job in business is we, I don't want to change your mind. I just want to help you make up your mind. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I color that with, and also understand that they're getting bombarded. Yeah. yeah. Email, text, calls, websites, et cetera, on different ideas. So maybe confusion is the way to, to uh, calibrate those two points. But I think most companies, and this is sort of the, the point I was sort of thinking about is, is that most sellers, most companies, approach prospects with this idea is, well, yeah, buying is making a change. Therefore, you must have in mind what it is you want to do and to change, I'm going to change your mind to make sure it's to buy my product. And it's like, no. <laughs> Back to Andreessen's point, they know they've got a problem. Maybe they don't know the, the depth of it. It's your job to help them define what that problem is and help them make up their mind about how they're going to solve it. 
Yeah, if you do that, good. then it's more likely they're going to buy your product. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, that, and that is expectations. I mean, that, that gets to the whole root yes. of this mindset that says, have that expectation at the start of the day. Your proclivity for success is going to be much greater than anything else. Yeah. I love that. Well, excellent. All right. Well, Mike, fantastic talking with you. So if people want to connect with you um, and then they want to learn more about your book, how, first of all, how can they buy your book and how can they be in touch with you? Yeah, so the book goes on sale in mid-November, I think November 16th. We decided to wait till after the election for obvious reasons, but good deal. Uh, avail- yeah, good, good deal. People are uh, distracted. Well, hopefully uh, it'll be after the election, but November 16th on Amazon. <laughs> um, and then like, also- we got, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, um, who knows? Uh, but uh, I think the other thing I've, uh, I think the other thing I've done is under my name, which is www.mikesmirklow, S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com, I've got a bunch of resources around sales, nothing as robust as yours, but there are some things that I've seen from sales. There's also a quiz uh, about entrepreneurship and mental tenacity that's free to take, and, and there's a free chapter of the book. So mikesmerklow.com is the most effective channel for that, and then I'm on all social at the same uh, same handle. And the last thing I'd say is all the proceeds of the book, I'm not doing this to make money, they're all going to support diverse um, diversity in entrepreneurship. So I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight that any proceeds of the book are going to a scholarship that my wife and I set up to fund uh, entrepreneurs coming from diverse backgrounds that Perfect. are interested in entrepreneurship. Perfect. Because as you know better than, than I, but what less than 2% of venture capital money goes to uh, people of color, well, not people of color, but African-American entrepreneurs. Yeah. And we, and we need uh well, I, I like to end by saying we, we need more entrepreneurs in the world. We need they're going to solve the hard problems. Do you, you trust the the government of any entity of any country versus an entrepreneur? No way. We need more diversity in entrepreneurship, and we need more entrepreneurs that can understand and, and stay strong through all the ups and downs. Because might right now might be the hardest time ever to be an entrepreneur. So hopefully, uh, Mr. Monkey and me will provide some resources for <laughs> for those that want to do it or thinking about doing it. All right. Excellent. Well, I recommend people pick up the book and read it. And Mike, again, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I really enjoyed it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Mike Smirklow for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us at uh, The Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating and a review, let us know how we're doing, but we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.